This is Dev Propulsion Labs, the podcast about building successful developer tools, hosted by Evil Martians. Hi, this is Dev Propulsion Labs, and I'm your host, Victoria Milnikova. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest. Please welcome Stefan Avram, co-founder and head of growth at Wondergraph. So how about we start with just a brief introduction? Stefan, can you please tell us about who you are, what you do, and a little bit about Wondergraph? So my name is Stefan. I'm the co-founder and the head of growth at Wondergraph. We're a VC-backed startup that sells enterprise software to some of the largest enterprises in the world. Wondergraph is a next-generation API platform that allows you to integrate, manage, and deploy APIs with ease. And we currently have an offering called Wondergraph Cosmo that allows you to easily manage your supergraph and subgraphs with GraphQL Federation or a drop-in replacement for Apollo Graph OS, if you're familiar with Apollo. Sounds pretty awesome. Well, we'll dive uh, deeper into Wondergraph in just a second. For now, I want to focus on your personal journey. Can you tell us a little bit about you? What has led you to this position that you are taking uh, right now at Wondergraph? And what kind of experience shaped you, you know, to become who you are today? Yeah, so I actually have an interesting story. Um, when I graduated college in 2019, I was working for a cybersecurity startup. And um, the founders of the cybersecurity startup, they launched five companies before this, and they've all been acquired. So these were some serial entrepreneurs. And um, I was at the holiday party, and I was talking to one of them. And I was just like, like, how did you get into starting companies or whatever? And me and him talked the entire night. And at the end of the night, he told me, uh, Stefan, in two weeks, I'm going to fire you. I was like, what? <laughs> Why? He's like, I don't know. I don't see you as a security analyst. I don't see you really, you know, shaping your life, going here. I can help you out. I can be a mentor. If you come up with an idea, maybe I can invest, but I'm going to fire you in two weeks. And I was like, okay, this guy's drunk. There's no way he's going to do that. And then in two weeks later, I actually got fired. And my manager was like, yeah, I came from up upstairs. I don't know. He got fired. And so I walked into his office and he's like, yep, go, go start something. You can't be here anymore. And I was like, okay. Like I was a little bit upset. And then I moved to Miami in the middle of COVID and I started working for some startups and I was a software engineer by trade. So I was just working as an engineer. And um, the whole time I was reading things like uh, Y Combinator, um, like essays, Paul Graham essays, all basic blog posts that people in startups will read. And I really wanted to start a startup, but I didn't know what to do. And um, Y Combinator released this thing called uh, Find a Co-Founder. And so I hopped on it. And it's funny enough, my first match was Jens, who's my current co-founder. And he's like, I have this software called Wondergraph. I'm thinking of open sourcing it. You want to help me out with it? And then I was like, okay, let me see. And so I joined and it was in a very interesting place. Like it wasn't like a full, like it was a good product, but like where it is now is it's amazing. And so I joined and me and him started working together and we brought on two more guys and we raised some money and now we're working on it full time. And it's just been a dream ever since. And it all came from just a random match on like a Tinder, but for finding a co-founder. And so we've been working together ever since and just been an absolute blast. Wow. I mean, that sounds really impressive. We often hear from founders that they get some insights and some maybe like initial guidance from Paul Graham's essays. And it's really fun that the the match co-founder thing actually works. Okay, let's talk about Wondergraph a bit. So you did a little bit of an introduction. I will say that in short, as I understand it, Wondergraph is kind of like it standardizes how to build backend for frontend. That's how I understand it. You guys recently raised your seed round. Huge congrats in the current 
economic climate, it's a tough job to do and big congratulations on completing that. So let's talk about strategizing the growth because you act as the head of growth at, at your startup. So tell us about strategizing go-to-market strategies, especially at early stages. So it's a good question. And like when I matched with Jens on um, that co-founder website, he sent me Wondergraph to try out and I was working as an engineer and I had to integrate some APIs together and Wondergraph, I tried it out and I did it in seconds. And I was like, wow, this has some real, real potential. And so from there, I saw the grow to market strategy as this is a way we can save developers time and companies money. And the best way that we were able to strategize it is by building a community. So first we open sourced the product. The reason we did that is because enterprises have a list of requirements with enterprises. And if it's not a certain license, it becomes very hard to sell them your product. And so we open source it. It makes it really easy for adoption. We built a community around it. We have over a thousand people in our discord talking about it, using it, sharing it with their friends. And so one of the market strategies we have is just helping people out and building cool stuff with it because when they build something cool with it and you make a developer feel really special and they feel like Superman because they used your product to build something, they're really you know keen to talk to other people about it. So they build something, they talk to somebody, they try it out, they build something, they talk to somebody. Before you know it, they start suggesting it to their CTO at work like, hey, we should use Wondergraph internally to integrate APIs together. And so I think that's probably the biggest go-to-market strategy. And then the second is our content. So we write really good blog posts and I mean, we get a ridiculous amount of views on our website and it's all because it's just helpful stuff. And so the second one is just being super helpful with content. So we write about very specific problems that people have and how to solve them, but we don't throw Wondergraph in there. We're just like, this is how you can solve it. And then at the very end, or you can use Wondergraph. And so people will either solve it the way we suggested or use Wondergraph. And so that's the second, I think, biggest go-to-market strategy. So the first community and the second is really detailed content. That's that's pretty cool. We had an episode on technical marketing in the first season of Dev Propulsion Labs, and we were talking about how engineers really need value in content to actually relate to it. So we kind of like very deeply resonate with that idea. And I want to stay here for a little longer. So for groundbreaking tools like Wondergraph, you have to kind of like educate the market, right, about it. So what were the different things you tried? I mean, it sounds simple enough, right? Start a community, <laughs> write amazing blog posts. But where, what were your kind of like first steps? Yeah, and, and you're right. It, it sounds simple on paper, but it's actually extremely hard. So uh, first with the community is like, we opened up a Discord channel and invited people there, but like nobody just wants to join a Discord. And so you have to figure out a way to bring them there. And it's by talking about things that they're running into. So in all of our blog posts, we would link the Discord link. Our goal was just to get you into the Discord link. We would talk to you in there. We'd help you solve problems and things like that. And then before you know it, the more people start joining, the more people become familiar with Wondergraph, they start helping each other out. And now you actually have a community, which is the most important. And then second, I actually wrote about this on LinkedIn today. Like a lot of people when they're doing developer marketing or like um, go to market strategies, they copy the big company. So they'll copy like Apple or Microsoft. And it's like, you can't copy them because they're doing big company things because they are a big company. So what works for them won't work for you. You have to go and study what they were doing when they were a startup, because maybe that could work for you. And so it's really important, like when you're a startup, that you kind of figure out your own avenue. So you try 
everything you can. You try Twitter, Facebook ads, you try, well, ads we can talk to later. I'm not huge on ads, but you try everything. So like content management, you try sending out content, you try cross-posting your content, you try everything. And you'll see that there's a rule that 80% of your success comes from 20% of your efforts. And so you'll see that like for us, content works really well. So we put content and that's where we go 100% in on. And then we also saw that YouTube works really well. So now we make videos and we post on there. And so you'll see when you spread it out and you try everything, that there are some things that you try that work really well. So you just double down on those things and you honestly stay with them for as long as you can. That's why like companies like, you know, Apple, they're so good because they double down on brand or Vercel. They're so good on doubling down on developer relations. So you find out what works for you in the beginning and you just double down on it. Curious to learn about a year ago, you launched on product hunt and you actually managed to get like product number five of the, of the day or something like that. I don't know how much you were involved with this product hunt launch, but if you know about this, how did it go for your product? And was it at all impactful for product recognition or brand recognition in the end? So product hunt's interesting. I read a blog post from this company of how they launched on product hunt and I can link into you after and product hunt. Um, people think like if you're going to get top five or top 10, it's just launch a cool product. And that's actually totally wrong. Like you have to put yourself in the top five or the top, you know, 10, and you can do that by, you know, kind of like creating an army. So what you do is you get your community, you get your email list, you get all your friends that, you know, here, you get everyone that knows their friends and their accounts. So, you know, 15 employees, everybody has like, I don't know, 20, 30 people. They know they tell them to sign up for product hunt. And then you have to prepare everybody. They can't just have a product hunt account on the day that you launch. They have to have it prior or else they get spammed. You have to kind of schedule a entire scheduling list of when to launch, how to launch email reminders and campaigns, blog posts and everything. So you have to literally set up an entire timeline. The important thing is one um, product hunt is 24 hours and it's 24 hours on Pacific time. So the new product launches at 1201 Pacific time. That's 3 a.m. for me. So I woke up at 3 a.m. because I'm on Eastern time. And at 3.01 is when we launched our product. And from 3.01, uh, like on Monday, I was up till 3.01 on Tuesday because you have to orchestrate the entire sending. So you orchestrate the email sends, you orchestrate the tweets, you schedule everything in advance, and you have to literally get like um, armies at dedicated time. So we would get all the European people when it was Europe time. We would get all the Americans when they woke up. We would get the Pacific time people when it was close to the end of the day because you have to keep filling it so it keeps going up and up and up. And some people just launch their product and it just explodes. But nowadays, product hunts are completely overwhelmed with just companies. And there's also a lot of spam on there. So like, for example, when we were competing, we got uh, the fourth or fifth product of the day. There was a company that got the fourth or fifth, I don't remember, when it was one below us, but they, every time we would get to like 200 and they were at 100, in the next two minutes, they were at 200 already. So they were buying like votes and like Product Hunt does a really bad job of doing that. So Product Hunt in the end, it's a lot of work and it only brought like 2000 people to our website that day when blog posts a day bring literally one blog post will bring 2000. So I don't recommend it. If you can launch on there and do low effort, that's great but it's a lot of effort for a really small reward. It did give us VC calls and like two customers, which was great, but I wouldn't put as much effort as I did into it again. 
Sounds great. I mean, it sounds like it was a rich experience because <laughs> you did work with community, you know, and that um, when we launched on Product Hunt, our products, I felt that sense of like union, you know, like we're doing like one cool thing together. But in the end, I agree, it's kind of tough to measure. Does it actually pay off? I don't know. It's nice to have a badge, but that's about it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The badge looks cool and like, you can say like I got to the top five of product home, but I think it's too much effort for very little to gain. Let's talk about monetization. It's a hot topic, especially in open source products. You know, many engineers, technical founders that I meet, they often face a challenge of monetization. How did Wondergraph approach this? And what advice would you give, let's say, a popular open source framework that's or project that is considering monetization? Yeah, so that's actually a huge topic. And I talked with my friend. So Dax is the, the founder of SST or one of the founders. And it took me and him would always like butt heads because I'd be like, how can people use open source and not pay for it? And then he'd be like, well, you need to understand that if you use open source, 99% of people won't pay you a cent. And the easy, when you realize that, the easier it is because now you know what you're dealing with. and. A really good example I like to tell people is, um, do you remember the the zip file manager WinRAR? Yes, 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 I, yes. Did you ever pay for it? No. <laughs> but, but it was super useful, right? It was, yeah. Yeah, and so they did a really bad monetization strategy because they would just have a little pop-up that you could click X. And so they provided immense value, but they didn't know how to monetize it. And so with open source, you have to know that you need to provide a ridiculous amount of value. But there needs to be a limit where you stop. So you provide the value to get them into the greatest position and they can keep using your product as open source. But then there's a baseline where you stop and there's extreme value on top of that. A really good example is um, Vercel and Next.js. So Next.js completely open source framework. Anybody can use it. You can build amazing websites. But now you get to the problem of like, oh, like how do I like deploy this? How do I host this? How do I collaborate on that? And that's where Vercel comes in because they have a paid offering that can help you completely get rid of all that. And it's a SaaS offering. So the way we monetize is we have three different strategies. So we have support, big enterprises will use us. And if they're using us in production, if something goes down, it's a huge issue for them. And so they pay for a dedicated Slack channel with us, where we provide them with feature updates, with um, bug fixes, with maintaining old versions and stuff like that. And they pay a monthly support contract for like a year or two. And the thing is about support, it's a good um, monetization strategy, but it's not the best because you have to deal with the customer and it's not about the customer. It's rather, you know, your, your service business rather than a, a technology business. The second is we have a cloud offering. So similar to Vercel, we have a really easy product to deploy your Wondergraph applications to the cloud. And so that one comes with really generous pricing that you can use. And then the third is um, Wondergraph Cosmos. So we just launched that, which is like a drop-in replacement. And that one has really, really helped with monetization. So we charge $10 per 1 million requests. And so if a company has, you know, 100 million requests, that's a decent amount of money coming in. And then when they get past like 250, they usually ask for, you know, like enterprise or things like that. We have customers that they have a billion requests. And so if the usage based model is really easy to adopt, but it can get expensive. And so we also offer discounts on top of that as well as if you want to self-host it for completely for free, since it's open source, we can offer um, support on top of that. You have this intricate pricing model that fits all levels of experience. 
So I actually want to ask whether you were able to achieve this from the get-go or did it take a couple of iterations in your pricing strategy to find that sweet spot? And if it did take a couple of iterations, how did you find that nice balance in the end? Yeah, that's a great question. So I don't think I know any founder or anyone that like got it from the get-go. Like you, you, you put out a, like a price you think people would pay for and you'd be very surprised. So like we knew it was going to be open source and we expected people to pay for support and you'd be surprised. Not many people really care. And if your product is good, it solves their problem. They don't need any help for you. Why would they pay for help? And so the support one was tricky. That one is still good. It's still a great way to monetize and, you know, really build relationships. I always tell people, if you have like 10 support contracts, you're not a tech founder, you're a consultant because you're dealing with bug fixes and you're just helping them use a product. And then the second with cloud pricing, pricing is really, really important. And it's really important that you get it right in the first, you know, first one to three iterations versus, you know, completely messing it up. And so we messed it up in the beginning by pricing too high and nobody signed up and then pricing too low. So the easiest way you can avoid that is just price it really, really low to begin with, especially when you're in like alpha or beta. And from there, build upon it. And you can talk to your users and ask them like, okay, how much value do you see in this? How many requests? You can, you can see based on the usage, if they have a hundred million requests going through it a day, it's pretty useful, you know? Or if they have a billion a month, it's really useful. And so from there, you can find a nice, you know, pricing strategy. I, I'm a big fan of um, usage-based pricing because mm -hmm. one of our competitors, they they have very weird pricing and it confuses people and it's just 10x expensive. And so they come to us and they're just like, oh, $10 per 1 million. Oh, I can self-host it for free. And if you can eliminate all that and the pricing is dead simple for them to go to their CTO and be like, hey, listen, these guys are asking for 100K um, a month or something crazy like that. But we can self-host and we can pay support for 6K with these people. It's obviously a clear choice where they'll go. I want to stay here for, for just a second. So... I know that it's a tricky situation when you need to raise prices. Your advice is to start with low prices and then to go up, 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 you know, uh, as you get feedback from your customers. How do you actually make that adjustment of making prices higher? Do you have maybe like one advice that you could give to somebody who is facing that challenge at the moment? So, yeah, there, there's a company. It's um, what Cosmo is a competing product for and they offered this amazing tool and then they go and they tell you you were paying you know 60k for the year now you have to pay 600k and i can tell you don't do that that, that that's very bad your customers will get burned and there's other companies that have done that like hazura and i think apollo also did it and just a bunch of people and it's really important to make sure when you raise money that you raise money that makes sense so if you raise 500 million on like a series d you're expected to return three times that. So how are you going to create enough value for 500 million ARR? And what investors will try to get you to do is go and upsell your current customers. And it's really bad when you're using a tool and you love it and they come up to you and they're like, hey, the pricing increase is now 10x versus what you were paying for before. And I think that's what kills innovation, especially with companies, because now they're forced by their investors to figure out a way to return this investment. They have to go and force and squeeze their current customers for as much money as they can. And while they're doing this, they're not really innovating and figuring out a way to add value on top of that. So my recommendation, and I learned this from um, Nikita and Neon, their pricing is free for the free plan and it's free for the pro plan. And for the enterprises, talk to them. 
it's not going to stay free. But if you start out free, you can learn so much. You can learn how much people are going to willing to pay for you. And then you can make a really educated decision on this is how much we're going to charge that makes sense for us. And this is how we're going to be able to achieve, you know, 100 million ARR because of how much usage we already have. And plus, it's just way easier. And then you don't have to go back and be like, hey, guys, give me money. It's actually great that you mentioned Nikita because he's also going to be on this season of Death Propulsion Labs. So he's he's yeah. amazing. He's one of those founders that you, you know, really get inspired by. Okay, let's talk about user feedback. So um, when you, you know, just start your startup, user feedback is something that's essential for you to grow, right? You have to move in quick iterations, etc. At Wondergraph, how did you prioritize and implement user feedback? And I'm talking about very early kind of like stages, right, of the startup. And how did you make sure that the tool remains relevant and user-friendly in the process of those updates? Yeah, a good question. I was talking to uh, a friend about this the other day. So there's three things that are really important with user feedback. The first one is that not all user feedback is good feedback. And what that means is if you get a large enterprise using your product and they're paying you and they're providing you feedback and you're building features for them, if you're building features for them that are only related to them and nobody else, that's not very good feedback because if you build it for them and you try to market it to other companies and nobody wants to adopt it, you've kind of become a, you know, a web shop. You're building features for one specific company. So it's important to remember that not all feedback is good. It's only good if it's something that you can add to your product and market it to others that will get more adoption. Because as a startup, you want to get hyper growth. And the only way to do that is with the mass, not one company at a time, one a year. That'd be ridiculous. The second is um, you have to know how to conduct user interview questions. And um, the best resource for this is uh, The Mom Test. It's a fantastic book, and it tells you exactly what kind of questions you can add. And uh, the question you should be asking is, how are they currently doing things? You, you can never pitch your product to them. Because if you ask them how they're currently doing things, you can really easily figure out, is this a problem my product can solve? Is this something that they even care about? Or is this something that they're just ranting about on the internet? And it can really easily help distinguish you from them. And um, that's probably the second most important thing. And then the third one, it's kind of stupid, but um, a lot of people never listen to it because they have this grand vision is just listen to your customers. Like, you, you don't know where you're going with your startup. It's very dark. And like the only way you can navigate is if you turn on the lights. And the only way you can turn on the lights is if you listen to your users and listen to the feedback. And so if you remember the first two tips and you're able to take out the really good feedback and you actually listen to your users, then the feedback that you get will help you build a better product that you can apply to the masses as well as actually see if you're solving a real problem. How do you make sure your tool remains relevant and user-friendly in this whole process of process and feedback? The biggest one is just being completely open to what they say. So we have like Slack channels opened up with all of our customers and we talk to them on the daily and they'll be like, hey, piece of feedback. Um, what do you think about this? And, or like, they'll be like, it would be nice if Wondergraph Cosmo could do this. And like, it just happened today. And we go and we right away, we mom test them. Why would you want that? Why would that make your life easier? Would, would that make your life significantly easier? Would you really like it? And once we kind of triage them with these questions, we then jump and we ask the other questions. Hey, we got this customer feedback. Would you also like this? And if enough people tell us, yeah, that we like this, then it's like, okay, this is something that's repeatable. This is something that more people want. And this is something that will make the product easier to use. And so then we implement it. But if it's like one question, he's like, can you do this? And we ask everybody, they're like, I, I don't, I've never ran into that problem in my life. And it's probably something that will make your product stay relevant. 
given the the vast ecosystem of developer tools at hand, you know, right now the market is kind of like slowly becoming oversaturated with the offering. How does Wondergraph ensure compatibility and seamless integration with popular tools on the market? I know that Wondergraph seamlessly connects with many front-end frameworks like Next.js, Weld, Remix, others. Do you have any plans to integrate other popular frameworks? And how do you make those decisions in general? Yes, we definitely want to expand more. And the market is so big for developer tools that Nikita, you should ask him about this, is that in this role, he's taking on more of a customer facing and like CEO facing. And if you'll notice, Nikita and Neon, they're really good at database as a URL is what they say. But everything else, they talk to partners, they talk to partners, they talk to partners. And in doing that, they build this giant ecosystem where it's like, I do one thing really well, but our partner does this other thing really well. And we make it really easy to both do, to do both things really well because you use me and you use him. And so that's the exact same approach that we're taking at Wondergraph that we learned from him is we do federation really well. We have an open source solution, but you want to do edge caching on your subgraphs? Graphbase, who we're looking to partner with, I haven't talked with today, they do an excellent job at that. Oh, you need some consulting or some resources? Well, the guild does GraphQL consulting and resources. Oh, we're coming up with this thing called um, Open Federation, which is our own specification, and then GraphQL Fusion. And so these are all open source tools that are tied together with multiple partners. So we have like a GraphQL Fusion, we have AWS, Chili Cream, Wondergraph, the Guild, Hazura. And when you work with partners from all over the place that do one thing really, really well, you get this ecosystem of people that do one thing really, really well. And so you can build a product really well because you're using the best tools of the best versus one tool that does everything kind of good. And so any partners are welcome. And the second thing that's most important is when you're open source, you get uh, contributors, you get people adding stuff. And so one guy just added spelt. So when you're open source, it makes everything way easier to add. So frameworks are easier to add, integrations are easier to add. And if you stay open source and you stay friendly with everyone, it just helps adding everything. Sounds great. Just today in the morning, I was having breakfast with uh, the CEO of Evil Martians, Irina. And we were discussing, so we have a small founder community, a DevTool founder community, and we were discussing that it would be really great to do like a GraphQL work group, you know, where we could introduce GraphQL related product founders to each other. And they can do exactly what you're, you're saying, like they can kind of like specialize and coexist in a way that enriches each other. I think it's a, it's a really great idea. And we see that a lot on the market right now, and there's definitely a ton of opportunity, you know, also because like somebody could cover cybersecurity for GraphQL, other people could cover something else, you do a different thing, you know, and together you can create this synergy that mm -hmm. just makes a lot of sense. Totally agree. And, and we have a partner actually for security, so it's Escape Tech. They do a fantastic job. So exactly what you said. Cool. Okay. Since the release of Wondergraph Cloud, what has been the feedback that you get from the developer community and what enhancements do you envision in the nearest future? Like what, what do you have in your pipeline for planned for the cloud? Yeah. So cloud is going well, feedback is going good. People love it, but, um, the more exciting one is Wondergraph Cosmos. So it's a drop-in replacement for Graph OS and it's fully managed. So you, we can manage it for you or you can manage it yourself because it's completely open source and you can self-host it. 
the feedback has been insane. Um, people really love the product. They're making decisions much quicker. They're buying the product. And that clearly shows you when someone's putting money down on the table that you're solving a pretty significant problem for them. So we've onboarded some really cool customers like um, Soundtrack Your Brand, um, Travel Pass Group, TV Pro. And next week we have our launch week where we're launching all about the open source and we're launching it like really exciting announcements as well as with like some guests on our AMA. And then we are presenting at GraphQL Con. So the reception so far, even though we did like a soft launch, has been customers signing up, people paying, people using it, people asking to try it out. And the feedback has just been fantastic. And for a product that we just have released, it, it, it's not like we just built it, but we just released it to the to our users. Um, they really enjoy it and they really like the product, which is super amazing. And the best thing is, is um, so you can self-host a product yourself. And one thing that we'll do is we'll have people and we'll help them onboard and self-host it. But when they see the pain and all the stuff that you have to do to get through to self-host it, they're like, okay, give me the manage that. I'll take the manage, please. And so it's like, you give them a nice way that they can always leave your solution if they want to. You know, let's say we become crazy and raise our prices, which we would never do. They can always self-host it for free. And so the reception has been fantastic so far. It's really exciting. Sounds awesome. So I like to end my conversation with the founder on a warm fuzzy note. That's what I call them. What makes you feel great about what you're doing right now? I mean, you already just, you know, touched on the positives of Wondergraph, but maybe we can stay on this nice note for a little longer. I talk to my fiance about this all the time. So like, I, I feel very lucky that I found Wondergraph because um, it's something that like, I look forward to every morning when I wake up, like the first thing I do is I go grab my phone, I check Slack, I see what the team's up to. Uh, and it makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside, as you said, because I, I feel lucky at my age, I found something that I absolutely love to do. And it's build companies, whether it's dev tool companies or just any company, I really look forward to that. And right now, like I am completely overwhelmed with um, things I need to do for the launch week and for GraphQL conference. And like, we have so much stuff that we planned, but I was thinking to myself, like, I, I wouldn't change this for the world. Like if I was doing this, uh, like working for somebody else as an employee, I would be very, very upset and I'd be stressed. But I think the stress that I have is really good stress and I really love it. And I wouldn't change it for the, anything in the world. And I'm lucky that I have a fiance that drags me away from the computer so I don't burn out. But if I could, I would stay all day working on this because of how much I like it. So in the end, I kind of give an opportunity for you to give, you know, shout outs or maybe like a call to action for our audience. What do you want to speak about? Maybe you want people to check out Wondergraph. So if you guys are using GraphQL Federation or if you are trying to take a monolith and break it up into microservices and you're thinking about using GraphQL, or if you got hit with a really big pricing gouge from Apollo and you're looking for an alternative, you should definitely check out Wondergraph Cosmo. Um, we've been onboarding customers like crazy. It's fully open source. We're releasing a bunch of the stuff next week, which will be really exciting. We'll talk about it at GraphQL.com. You can check it out at wondergraph.com slash Cosmo. And it's free to try, super fun, super, you know, detailed, it gives you analytics, gives you metrics, gives you tracing, everything you want if you want to self-host. And it comes really affordable with a really nice managed solution. So if you have any of those three problems, check out Wondergraph Cosmo. Sounds solid. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you for catching yet another episode of Dev Propulsion Labs. We at Evil Martians transform growth stage startups into unicorns, build developer tools, and create open source products. 
If your developer tool needs help with product design, development, or SRE, visit evilmartians.com slash devtools. See you in the next.